I'm Frank. I'm Tom. I'm Justin. I haven't slept at all like the past few nights. I don't know what it is. Oh, then don't drink coffee. It's seven o'clock at night, eight o'clock at night. Jesus. Don't tell me what to do. I love coffee. (laughs) I I also love coffee. I'm now at the point where coffee doesn't actually help me be awake. It just helps me be mildly functional. Yeah, you're right. And then if I drink it at a certain time, then I'm just awake for the rest of the night. Yeah. Coffee. Coffee now has no effect on my brain. I drink yeah. so much. Um, I mean, the way caffeine works is that your brain makes uh, smoke, and that smoke is called adenosine. And your brain has little adenosine sensors inside of it. And when there's a lot, your brain goes, oh, shit, there's all this uh, exhaust from the brain. So it's time to turn off and wash it all out with sleep. And what caffeine does is it binds with those adenosine receptors so they can't uh, – experience the higher levels so it doesn't really give you energy so much as it prevents you from feeling tired yeah that's actually because that is kind of a good way to describe the feeling that it's always given me like it never made me feel jittery it just always made me feel not tired yeah and that's why i find if like i've been up all night I try not to drink it because in the morning because uh, my brain will just start glitching out on me and I'll have a really bad time. Yeah. I'll drink a nice cup of tea. I'll have a cuppa. A cuppa? A cuppa? A cuppa. A cuppa of cuppa? lumps of sugar in my tea. <laughs> We're about drink to launch into a Frank song. <laughs> <laughs> How's it feeling, feeling? Hey, you. You guys discuss how you guys are doing, and I'm going to go get myself a cup of coffee. Jesus. Come on. We just... no. no one cares what's up with you. Just go. Oh, God. <laughs> how are you doing, J-Baby? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Um, um, how's the library? The library's good. How does it feel to be not Garns and Global? Um... I thought my um, being away from there would make me less angry at the place. <laughs> Same. And it didn't, but it did make me less depressed. Yes. I was immediately depressed in the aftermath of it for yeah. circumstantial reasons. Yeah. But but I was I have been like my mood has, is just leaps and bounds better than it was when I had to walk into that place every day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Blair and Blancher. <laughs> I also started playing Pokemon Go again for no reason. Really? Yeah, I, I don't know why. Go. I, I do not know why. Play Hollow Knight. No. You have a Switch. You have a Nintendo Switch. You have one of the most perfect video game systems ever designed. No, I'm, uh, I'm replaying uh, Stardew Valley. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, no. You you gotta you you don't even have to replay Stardew Valley. You just keep playing Stardew Valley. Well, here's the thing. I st- I played it once, and then I married. Uh, I forget her name. The, the purple haired no, Abigail, the, the artist, the red haired artist. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and then big mistake, I think, because Abigail's father is the wizard. 
Yeah, but she's also a child. She's also one of she... the conspicuously one of the children that you can bang. No, she... I haven't played Stardew Valley in a while. They live with their parents. They're... That doesn't make them a child. That, that's true. That's accurate. But there are other ones who like have their own lives and you know their own places and i feel more comfortable you know pursuing them that's fair because you do essentially live alone in a shack yeah here's the the thing that i find weird about it and made me uncomfortable is is playing that sort of game and your own personality and choices go into like picking your mate so yeah Yeah. i would love to marry uh leah she's like this badass artist but then i get married to her and she just stands in my house creepily (laughs) and i feel depressed that i ruined her life oh it's um it's like in skyrim when you marry somebody in skyrim they basically just become an animatronic statue that lives in your house yeah it's it's so depressing and then we had kids and everything, and I was like, I'm living a goddamn lie. So I divorced her and had the witch uh, erase her memory, and I got rid of the kids. Jesus Christ. And then I felt bad doing that, so I had to start over again. What if that's See, how... When, I, that's what when if I, the, I play Stardew Valley, I just start a mayonnaise empire. <laughs> what if that's and I how, go in the mine a lot. Um... Tom, T-Baby, how you doing? Are you still shackled to Glorinson Global? I am. I I don't oh. think that's going to be the case for too much longer. Mm. Um, I don't. Because you came, you came back with uh, Blair and Blanchard returned. <laughs> I'm not going to leave that in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's no one's real name. <laughs> There's the one Aussie listener. <laughs> Oi. Who's Blair and Blanchard? <laughs> Who do these tosses think they uh Oi, my my government just elected a fascist <laughs> Oh god. I believe it's what happened in Australia. I don't follow it that well, that was the impression that I got. Neither do I. How you doing, Tom? I'm you know I'm doing okay. Uh, are, are you better now that the Picard trailer is out? That straight up gave me uh goosebumps. Oh my god. Um now okay. Me and Justin were talking a little off pot about this. Now he is very nearly done TNG. Very nearly. I've got like 20 episodes left, but I so am So you're like season 6. No, season 7. Like Season I'm... 7, okay. Yeah, yeah. Cuz yeah. they they did 24 episode seasons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um And I haven't watched the movies. The so there's two good ones. I'm going to watch all of them. God love you. Yeah, they're mostly, they're half bad. Because I think there's only four movies. Um, and he hasn't seen the resolution of TNG. And um, I have. And I've As also, have I. And I've also seen the uh, the movie with... So this is like some sort of alternate timeline universe that doesn't have to do with the series finale of TNG? No, it's linear. What? <laughs> I think it's supposed to be a linear timeline because the event that happens that causes Picard to be in the state that he's in 
is the event that causes the birth of the J.J. Abrams movie universe. Because Picard exists in the same timeline as old Spock, because that Spock was in the two-part episode Reunification. He meets Kirk, he meets Scotty and Bones, etc. So those characters exist in Picard's timeline. The destruction of Romulus causes the wormhole that creates the Kelvin universe, that oh. creates Chris Pine and, and Zachary Quinto and etc. I... Never felt more that I wanted you here in the room with us recording, Frank, <laughs> so I could kick the shit out of you, you <laughs> fucking nerd. Oh my god, go on. So the destruction of Romulus is what causes the creation of the J.J. Abrams verse. I didn't know that. I kind of, I kind of nerdily <laughs> like that. That they're, it's all one universe, including the original series and. Well, do you not remember the beginning of the J.J. Abrams movie? That's how it starts. Nope, do not remember it. <laughs> yeah, so it starts with the event that they're talking about, mm. which is the destruction of Romulus. Mm. Uh, all I know is that I want a case of that Picard wine. Ooh, oh, yeah, Chateau baby. Picard wine, baby. They're going to release it. They better. You know, I can't wait for who gets saddled with that job. Of making the special run <laughs> of the companion wine, like it's going it... to be a shitty winery, though. Yeah, yeah, because no serious winery is going to make fucking Chateau Picard. It's going to be like a, a Jeff Bridges uh, wine company. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to be the company that Orson Welles did those commercials for. <laughs> it's going to be the company that um, I'll, I'm going to get to it in a second. But for the Game of Thrones series finale. No, they make good beers. You just had one of the shitty ones. I, well, what I got was it was a beer wine hybrid thing, uh. and it tasted like absolute shit. They have made good Game of Thrones beers. That you're talking about, Omagong Brewery. They have made really good Game of Thrones and good beers in general in the past. Every once in a while, one of their Game of Thrones beers was dog shit because they experimented too hard. Yeah, don't experiment, beer alcohol makers. <laughs> They did They did one beer, and I don't know shit about Game of Thrones, but they did one beer called Hand of the Queen, and it was a beer for Tyrion, mm. quote-unquote, and it was a really good beer. Nice. Well, I mean, I'm glad something good came out of... Do we want to talk about it? <laughs> Justin. Justin, so, ladies and gentlemen, real politics is depressing, right? Shit's happening that we don't even want to talk about because it's too sad. Mm -hmm. What we really want to talk about is fakey fake politics involving uh, what is it on that show? Dragons and wizards and monsters. And... Are there elves? Uh, there are no elves. Um. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> let me let, let me take you back like six years ago. I'm uh, uh, a little chubby boy, uh, like twenty four years old. <laughs> Almost spit beer on my laptop. <laughs> uh, my final semester of college, and people keep talking about Game of Thrones. It's two seasons in. I'm like, this is bullshit. Fuck that shit. I hate you. <laughs> Stop talking to me. <laughs> and then one Don't morning, talk to me so I can sit silently in the corner of my classroom. <laughs> yes. In my fedora. <laughs> so one morning, early morning. Instead of working on my final project, I um, put on the first episode of Game of Thrones, and then I watched the second, and the third. 
halfway through the day, my mother had made me a chicken pot pie. They were went on vacation. So I was just eating this big chicken pot pie all day. Halfway through, <laughs> I go buy a case of Newcastle brown ale. Oh, wow. And I, I binge the first season of Game of Thrones, and I drink a case of beer, and I eat a chicken pot pie, and it was the happiest day of my life. <laughs> I... I then I then proceeded to devour all of the books and the uh, pot pie and the pot pie and I was hooked and there was that beautiful day there was the day when I I read in the book The Red Wedding and I threw the book away from me I I remember watching The Red Wedding and just feeling numb for hours and I thought this is strange how how a television show can really make you feel this thing. When Jamie Lannister shockingly gets his hand chopped off and then a rock and roll song plays over the credits, they would experiment, do things like that to really make you feel they put effort into this show. And then uh, season seven happened and they moved past the books and, and season seven was a bad season. Okay, that's fine. And then season eight comes along and okay. So people get angry at art and artists. People make petitions and that is, that is so stupid. Um, especially with art that you disagree with, you don't like how they, they did it. These are artists who are making choices, um, that, that you might not like, but they put the effort in Game of Thrones, we have the right to be angry at <laughs> because mm. the showrunners uh, could have gone on for as long as they wanted. They shortened the seasons. They did not put the effort in. They are talentless hacks. And hey, you fucking Star Wars nerds, you fucking Ooh. dweebs. These are the guys who are, are because you fucking freaked out so much. Ryan Johnson's trilogy is being taken away from him. And he could have done interesting things. And you get these fucking Game of Thrones slobs uh, taking over your beloved franchise, putting in the minimal... A minimum of effort, the minimum of talent, and uh, where your petition is going to get you then, you fucking idiots. Go off, King. Uh, so what did what did you not like about this? Specific? Oh, so speaking of, uh, uh, here's the thing. All of the plot points, um, I don't disagree with. I think all of them are interesting. Brand becoming king makes zero sense in the fucking show because they were leading up to this this whole time. They knew where they were going and they leave him out of a whole fucking season. They don't put any effort into creating a character of him. And so he's just a fucking walking meme. The books... Okay, that makes sense. So I feel spoiled for the fucking books, but we're never going to get them because that fucking uh, <laughs> morbidly obese nerd is going to die. And it, and and it, fine, do what you want. That's fine. But don't fucking uh, uh, go out on on uh, tours, interview tours, and and go on uh, fucking TV. Uh, you are wasting everybody's time. It's the same thing. Both of them. Both sides are people uh, um, who just got bored with the product they're making. And which is a goddamn shame because they could have left us with a piece of art. Now, in my opinion, a piece of art that uh, adds no value to the world. It's purely just a story, a decent story. Uh, but nothing more. But what they're left with is uh, disappointment and failure. 
Um, uh, it's it's a it's a goddamn shame, but oh well. I'm moving on. I'm currently watching The Leftovers. I love that show. There's a lot of great art out there, people. And yeah, you can be upset. You can be disappointed. Sometimes, like with this situation, you can feel a little angry, but it's art. There's a lot of it out there. Find what you love. I mean, fuck those guys, though. <laughs> it's fucking bullshit. They fucking ruined it. <laughs> nowhere <laughs> um 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 so uh speaking of politics <clears throat> this whole fucking thing led up to guess what guys sam samuel tarley invents democracy yeah. wow great oh good for you good for you mcgee do you want me to smash your lights <laughs> you mean fucking smash him? Which also, he started writing the books in the 90s, and I could see how, oh, cool, yeah, that's a, that's a nice, uh, flipping the script. Oh, good for you, you dunked on Tolkien, you fucking fat piece of shit. You <laughs> fucking loser. Don't you fucking talk shit about uh, Tolkien. He created a piece of art that is full of love and, and fellowship and, and the deep, deep humanity and empathy. And what you created was, uh, oh, the kings are are bad and and monsters are bad but people are badder too uh, um uh, power hungry women are coming for you oh fuck you you fucking piece of shit and, and and here's the thing in the 90s yes that's a nice uh, cool interesting thing but for it to end this show to be leading up to the invention of democracy when we see what <laughs> uh, our current climate <laughs> yeah maybe democracy was bad yeah let's bring back the fucking dragons <laughs> um so i've never watched I, an episode I, of the show i'm very I'm very happy that sansa is queen of the, in the north um and Arya didn't do anything the last two episodes and uh i've got a lot of issues you you can read about it on uh any site on the internet <laughs> i agree with all of them so i I've, I've never watched an episode of the show um my main problem with it was the fact that there was this big existential threat that they were building up to yes. for eight seasons yeah and they resolve it in an hour and a half in the middle of the season. See, even then I was optimistic because I thought that kind of blew my mind because I thought, oh, they, they, they're going somewhere with this. No, they're not. No, they're not. They went nowhere with anything. Things just happened. And, and I, and in the books, I can see where they're coming from that. Like, oh, there's this big existential, uh, supernatural threat, but you know, uh, man, uh, uh, humanity is is what we should really uh, look out for. You didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. Hey, D&D, you didn't earn a goddamn thing. And you're being rewarded. Whereas somebody who tries something in a big genre type thing, like a Ryan Johnson, is punished by the the outcries of the fans. You guys are getting to continue on. You know what is going to be good, though? What's that? The Deadwood movie. Ooh, baby! <laughs> it looks good. It looks good. It looks f fun. We're going to get there. 
we're gonna get there next week next oh yeah shit that's next week baby tom have you seen an episode of deadwood <clears throat> nope it's a great show it made justin cry quite a lot it did well that puts it in a, a category with everything <laughs> lads <laughs> yes do you hear Tell everyone everything. Why cover anything up? Right? How to describe Frank? One, two, three, four! Well, there's the head, of course. He never takes it off. You think it's weird? Would it help if I said my facial expressions out loud? Welcoming smile. Delighted look. But what goes on inside the head, inside that head? I find this inspiring. Is music. Stop saying your facial expressions out loud is extremely annoying. We've been offered a really important gig, South by Southwest, in Texas. People are interested in us. We could be big. What game are you playing? Filling Frank's head with these ideas. I can't hear you over the sound of the bubbles. Someone needs to punch you in the face. Here we go. It's gonna be huge. You gotta come see us tomorrow night. I promise we'll be bad not okay. Frank, come back! With all his issues, 100% sanest cat I've ever met. Okay. The head. Take it off. I have a certificate. Frank, get off! Here it is. My most likable song ever. Coca-Cola, lipstick ring, go dance all night, dance all night. Kiss me, just kiss me, kiss me, Nephrodite. This is your most likable song ever? Yeah. People will love it. Some music in the distance. Guys, enough talking about the Picard show. That was a beautiful Klingon opera, Justin. <laughs> Just, Justin interrupted my my flawless Christopher Walken impression with his Captain Beefheart bit. That was clearly the buck tuck uh, <laughs> traditional <laughs> war song, also used in mating. Uh, I am rock hard. <laughs> You can't see it at home. I can, I can see it. <laughs> it's visible on my computer screen, which is wild. You can see that from space. Justin, you're packing heat. <laughs> oh, Much like the star of our film. Ooh, Michael Fassbender's got a uh, famously a big hog. <laughs> oh, my God. He has a huge penis, which makes a scene in this movie very funny. And we'll get to it. 
boys, what are we uh, talking about? <laughs> I don't know anymore. We are talking about the 2014 comedy film directed by Lenny Abrahamson, Frank. Frank? Frank? It's a freaking frank It's a freaking frank Oh my god, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to see a theme running through this episode. What? Of two, of two things. <laughs> what? One and a half. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, the- a name theme of two things and me. <laughs> Uh, so Frank, tell us about this film. Yeah, tell us about it. Uh, so this is a film, uh, co-written by a famous journalist named John Ronson, based on a newspaper article slash real life experience that he wrote. Uh, it concerns a character named John after him played by Donald Gleason. Uh, and John lives in a small town in coastal England, but aspires to be a songwriter. While walking along the beach, John witnesses a man trying to drown himself. The man is revived, but taken to the hospital. John talks to Don, played by Scoot McNary, last seen to most audiences on season three of True Detective. Oh, shit. I didn't recognize him. Yeah, that was him. him. That was the dad. He's great. He is great. Who explains the man was a keyboardist in an experimental band called the... St- I, how do you fucking pronounce their name Son again? Of Furbs or... Son of Furbs. Uh, managed by him. John mentions that he plays keyboards and is invited to play with the town in town that night. John goes along and meets the rest of the band, all of whom are reluctant about John, except for Frank. The band's leader, who constantly wears a papier-mâché mask over his head. The concert goes well until Clara, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, breaks the theremin and storms out. Bake him away, toys. No. Oh. Okay. Okay, okay. Uh, so I, I watched this movie twice in the past week and I had very different experiences having finished watching it and watching it the first time. I um, I don't know about you guys, but I felt like I, like the opening sequence where we hear the inner melodic mm. monologue of John as he's trying to come up with a song and a comedic thing. And then the thing where he's, you know, he's like living with his parents and he has a day job and he, he goes upstairs to write a little song. Or try to write a song, but it turns out to be uh, 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 Must Be Love, yeah. <laughs> the madness version. Okay, idea for a song in A minor, possible title, Suburbia. I dream of an angel, down to E in the bass, to take me away, to G, take me away, C. From these little boxes Back to A I dream of an angel up there To take Hang on Fuck It's madness Fucking madness song which, which in the montage they show somebody on the bus listening to For like three seconds Uh and he was like a super sympathetic character, and then sort of you're introduced to the band, and you don't know them yet. Uh, and in that first, my, at least in my first run through, I was very skeptical. I was expecting, I was expecting this to be like almost like a pseudo horror film, mm. like the Cult of Frank, you know, and all that. Yeah. Uh, but that's not how things went. And the second viewing, the characters, um, you know, unbeknownst to the audience, are fully 
just doing what they seem like they would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very consistent in that way. Um, now that, that opening segment <clears throat> sequence, um, could be, could be released as like a, like a short, like a short on the internet. And oh. it's, it's so accurate. It's, it's such a great setup and punchline and it really, sh- uh, sets up the character very well. Which is, um, he's, um, he's not, he's talented, but he's um, not that talented. Yeah. And that, that sets up the, the whole film. Yes. Uh, And his, and there's a scene that we'll talk about in the big middle segment mm -hmm. that proves that like the problem isn't necessarily that he's not totally talented, the problem is that his sensibilities are more conventional than theirs are. Yeah. Throughout the film, it starts in in the opening segment, and it continues throughout. And I think it's the worst handled aspect of the movie. It's cr- kind of cringy, but it's like I'm supposed to be a bit. But it also doesn't feel uh, um, lived like so much of the rest of the film does. His use of social media. See, I think that was the most accurate thing. One of the most accurate things in the movie, other than his like losing, like he gets a creative impulse for a song and then he like, he's got it. And then he, he loses it for a second. And then it turns out to be a song that's already been written. Yeah. But I, like there, there's some, something near the end that's very true to life with social media. So we'll get there. It's, it's, I, I think Absolutely. But I think so much of the rest of the film uh, feels uh, uh, experienced by the the creators uh, uh, because they it can't one it obviously was we know that and two there are so many things about this movie that are so fucking real that they co- couldn't have just been made up without having experienced them. I do believe that the social media stuff is made up. Oh, it's 100% made up. Because So the thing is, this... So John Ronson, the guy who wrote this movie, is a journalist. He's written a lot of pretty famous books. He wrote um, The Psychopath Test. He wrote The Men Who Stare at Goats. Uh, he wrote um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Um, but this was based on a real-life experience of his where he was a keyboard player in England for an English... A musician named Chris Spivey, who had a comedy music character named Frank Sidebottom, who wore a paper mache mask during performances, but he did not wear it all the time, the way the Frank character wears it in this film. Mm. And there was a very distinct difference of this is Chris Spivey being a comedy character versus versus this version of Frank, which is an American sort of outsider artist. And we'll talk a little bit more as the movie goes on about like Daniel Johnston, mm-hmm. Wesley Willis type yeah, stuff yeah. that this movie represents. Yeah. Um, Last note on uh, the social media thing is that this was made in 2014. Mm-hmm. And while I agree that there's sort of, especially as it becomes more important in, to the plot of the film, that there's a little bit of a deafness to how social media works. Yeah. But sort of writing writing a tweet as inane as working hard all day on songs, time for dinner, hashtag nom nom nom. That was par for the terrible course in yeah. 2014. Yeah. 
Yes, uh, that that is how people tweet it. Uh, I feel like we're all a way more cynical now. Yeah, and way more cognizant of how no one cares. And yeah, because uh, Trump became president through Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so onward, onward and upward, and twirling up and at them. <laughs> Up and at them. Not sideways, not forward, but upward and twirling, twirling, twirling to a brighter tomorrow. Frank invites John to become a full-time member of the band. He accompanies them to Ireland, where they plan to record their debut album in a remote cabin until they get it done, which ends up being for the next year. John becomes depressed and explains to... Wait... Don becomes depressed and explains to John that he wants to be a songwriter, but is terrible. He plays a song for John, who compliments it. The next morning, after completing work on their album, John finds what appears to be Frank's corpse hanging from a tree. He calls the rest of the band down, and they remove the mask, only to find it was Don wearing one of Frank's masks. Don is cremated, and it is revealed that Don was the original keyboard player. John reveals he has been posting the band's recording sessions on YouTube and Twitter. The Sorompres have gained a small fan following and have been invited to play South by Southwest. Clara displays contempt to John, and they end up having sex in a hot tub. Yes, they do. <laughs> but she threatens to stab him if the trip to America screws up. Who wrote this? <laughs> Sorry. So my favorite my favorite Wikipedia synopsis was my parents were watching um, Last Chance Harvey and I was half watching it and I didn't care to finish. So I went on Wikipedia to check how it ended and the Wikipedia said uh, and uh, Harvey um, walks out into the street and gets hit by a car and dies. (laughs) And that's how I thought it ended forever. And it's not how that ends. That's a bit oh, of irony Wikipedia. here. Um, I will say the the segment that was just summarized by Tom makes up the bulk of the film. Yes, yeah. uh, is their recording in Ireland, and um, a little bit earlier than this is when I realized that I like the music that the band is playing more than I liked any of the songs that the John character was coming up with. Oh yeah, no, that was like by. That was meant to be. That was meant to be instrumental to the plot. That yeah. John John was shit. That he was not good. No. And that and it it threads through to the end. Like you realize at the end that his his music is supposed to be not good. But at first I was like, wait, are they trying to say that his music is better than theirs? Because it's not. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think that was ever their goal. I watching this movie again. It, part of the thing that really strikes me, and I'm I'm I don't know if you uh, would agree with this, Tom is that so much of uh, my time as an artist um, has been that struggle, that fear of, am I a John mm. or, or am I a Frank? Mm. <laughs> you you're know? a me Frank. You might, I don't know if you're a him Frank. <laughs> oh, <but>. no! <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. You are much more of a him Frank. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Justin... Uh, Semi recently did a Christmas album like six months ago now. My fourth. Um, where there is a track on it where it's Justin. What were you smoking weed no. with Santa? <laughs> what? And... I would not do that to the beloved Santa Claus. 
Well, you modulated your voice to such a degree uh, that it sounded like everybody was just either stoned or tripping balls the whole time. And you said you were going to beat somebody's ass. Oh, yeah. This movie. I I, I named two movies that... um, that really captures something of at least my experience of making music um, more than any others. And this isn't necessarily a judgment of quality of the films, though I like them, but, um, but the truth that they have in them. And those are this movie and especially this middle segment and the movie uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world has Uh a lot of like true insight into my experience of as a musician, the jamming in this film, um, is some of the most realistic jamming I've seen on film of just dirt bags <laughs> <laughs> making noise together and like yes. grooving in it in like, uh, uh, almost, a, a nihilistic oh. sensuality. <laughs> You're corner. Nana. Moorham, Clara, the Owl, Night Hunter, Silent Killer. What have we got here? Lay an egg for me, little gingerbread. Lay an egg. Frank says he must push us to our furthest corners and unlock the great music that hides there. Squat! It can feel a little overwhelming at times, but all in all, I am happy to be a part of this. So much of my uh, Just of percentage happy. of my life was spent in a barn with with this fuck next to me, <laughs> uh, and and various others just fucking around. Um. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin calls it a barn. From what I understand, is it not a shack? Oh, the the barn yeah. is dead. I've got a shack oh, now. Okay. No, there was a barn. It but was... now Justin has a shack, which is a lot more ominous. <laughs> but it's a lot nicer. It is. The actual barn was pretty, pretty decrepit. But should like... we do a that's in the shack? But yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm so sick of hosting these. Uh, <laughs> but I remember recording being uh, high on painkillers, uh, recording a rock opera for a month yeah, with all yeah, of my buddies, yeah. climbing, literally climbing on the rafters with a, a microphone, uh, screaming. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, this is so accurate. So th- there's a part, and we talked about it a little bit at the beginning as a joke. But I think this movie knows that Michael Fassbender has a huge penis because there's a segment in this movie where the John character played by Daniel Gleason is in the hot tub and he is naked in the hot tub. And he and Clara, the Maggie Gyllenhaal character, who is what, like 15 years his senior? She's oh, like yeah. middle aged and he's yeah. in his like late 20s. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so what? So, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, so they're arguing. Hot. Yeah, he's in the hot tub, and the the sort of through line of the movie is that the Maggie Gyllenhaal character is sort of Frank's soulmate in a way, and she kind of doesn't want to give him up 
Yeah, I would also describe it as John is his uh, is Frank's plays the role in the film of Frank's super ego, and she plays his id. Mm, mm. Very Freudian. Very Freudian. Yeah. <laughs> Very but I mean, just a- that's accurate though. the the, uh, the bulk of the film is kind of uh, a struggle between John and what's her name, Jill, uh, Clara. 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 Um, <laughs> you just took Maggie Gyllenhaal's last name <laughs> and made part of it the character name. Hi, I'm Jill Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Anyway, you were talking about Big Dick. Yes. So Donald Gleason's character. In his fury, stands up naked in the hot tub. You can tell she gets one look at Donald Gleason's penis and smash cut to them aggressively fucking. She tries to drown him. Yeah, it, as, it, as I, I found that pretty funny. At which And it's funny that, like, the movie does that. Like, she gets one look at Donald Gleason's penis. They go at it. When you know in real life, Michael Fassbender is <laughs> packing it. Man... Frank, I'm disappointed in that. I thought there was going to be more to that. No, it's just a very funny thing that, like, that's the bit is, oh, Donald Gleason's the one with the huge penis, not the Michael Fassbender character. Yeah, first that, of all, that was written in the fucking script. That's first of all, I don't, in the fucking I don't script. think. Okay. Uh, uh, what I also appreciate about this segment, um, is that there's a point, and I talked about it a little bit earlier, where he tries to play a song for the group because he funds their way through the shack mm-hmm. for the next 11 months. Um, so to prove his worth, he tries to get a song uh, uh, written for them that they can play on the album. And he starts to play it, and he is taken over by Frank and, and Clara, and they make it, quite frankly, better. Yeah, yeah. Plainly better. I don't think there's meant to. Maybe it's a a failure of the music department, but I think the juxtaposition between the shit John was coming up with and what they were doing was meant to be like day and night. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and and I think a, a good a great scene was when um, Don shows yeah. shows John, John a song he wrote. Can um, we stop talking about Michael Fassbender's Wang to talk about what a great character Don is and Don, his whole arc ends in this segment? Yes, yes, he. Yeah, it does. Which Don, is, which was weird to me. Don and Frank had met in a um uh insane asylum. In, in an insane Mental asylum. Hospital. Yes. We find out later that Don used to be the keyboardist in the band, um. And in a great scene, Don says, oh, you're working on a song. Yeah, a shitty song. Well, no, it's even better than that, which kind of gets to a thing throughout. Mm. And what we're talking about, the contrast between what John does and what everyone else does, where uh, John is quietly working on his own and he's looking rather smug with himself. And then Don walks in and says, hey, what are you doing? Oh, uh, I'm composing. Have a listen. And Don goes, uh... Yeah, I've been there, man. When you try to write a song and it just comes out shit. <laughs> yeah. So like we're already shitting on what John's writing and then Don sits down and he writes he plays this beautiful song uh with 
uh, upon second viewing, a closer look at the lyrics, was a love song to mannequins, which yes. the bit is that <laughs> yes, John... the running joke is that he had sex with mannequins. That, yes. was, that was his version of insanity. And as John revealed that he has relationships with human women, but he has to get them to lay perfectly still. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. perhaps a little problematic in some ways. To as a long as era. it's consensual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, whatever. Um, so, yeah, but then, uh, uh, so Don obviously is very talented, mm-hmm. but he wants to be Frank, and he gives this speech about you may one day think that you can be Frank, and someday you might think that you are the Frank, but there can only be Frank. Yeah. And at other times he says, like, God, I want to be him so much. Uh and he helps, he becomes sort of a facilitator for Frank. He be, kind of becomes their manager. He becomes their recording engineer. He kind of uh, wrangles this John kid into it, you know. Uh, and you see a, like a, a suicide attempt earlier. Yes. Where he wants to go uh. into the lake and drown himself. And it gets played for laughs when he uh, um, gets hit in the head by a rock to get him to stop from drowning himself. Uh, but then, like the plot synopsis said, they see a person in an, uh, a Frank mask hanging, but then Frank walks up. So obviously that's not Frank there. And it's him. So he put on Frank's mask. He became Frank after helping him create his magnum opus. And then he kills himself. Which like, uh. is preceded by a beautiful fucking shot of they have just finished recording and the camera's slowly panning in on Don. Everybody's... Close pull in. Yeah, it's one of my favorite. Yes, they're passing beers between them. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot going on. It's like the Last Supper. Frank mm. is using a long straw to get to the beer. John uh, has his beer taken away by Clara, so mm. she can have it first. Uh, but the, you're distracted by all this action. But it winds up on Don, who has this kind of relieved and dismayed and de- depressed. But and and he as he's fully downing uh, a bottle. <laughs> A Corona, a mmm, yum, uh, icy cold Corona <laughs> that he's chugging. Um, that's a great shot, um, and it's one of the few shots in the movie that I think is really good, and it's really, like, because Scoot McNary is a really good actor. Yeah. And, like, the look on his face is really complicated and really painful because you can tell that, like, he's, like you said, he's so happy that it's done, he's relieved, and then there's this just look of anguish yeah. for a moment on his face, and then the next scene is you find him dead, hanging from the tree. But what I will say, though, is aside from that shot and a couple of other aspects of the movie, this was the segment that made me think this director, Larry Abramson, is not good at directing comedy. Because there is a segment in this that has to use the dual principles of comedy and horror, which is tension and release. Mm-hmm. And it's the segment where John uh, hears that Frank is in the shower and yeah. he is singing to himself in the shower. And he's walking into the room. He sees Frank's head on the floor. So his immediate assumption is, oh, Frank has his mask off in the shower. I'm going to try to see what he looks like. The reveal is that Frank has another mask on in the shower and it's covered in a plastic bag. Hilarious. The the movie fails at creating a comedic moment and sort of a vague horror moment because it's filmed completely wrong. There is no tension and there is no release to it because it's filmed in a reverse shot where you see Donald Gleason's character walking into the frame 
And the mask that he finds on the floor is only in sort of the bottom right of the frame, and you really only see it in your periphery. Yeah. So you don't get the full sense. It's it's not like you see him coming, walking into the frame from the back. You see the mask off to the side if it's filmed that way, and you can see the mask in full, and you would see the door creaked open from his perspective. Mm. So there's tension there. There's buildup. And there's like a, a sense of like, oh, is Frank going to look super fucked up? Is it going to be super scary? What's his face going to look like? And then the tension is released when the, the comedic reveal would be, oh, he's just wearing a paper mache mask and a bag. Yeah. But instead, it's filmed in a reverse shot. So you see Donald Gleason walking into the frame. The mask is off to the side. You see you're coming from the perspective of the door from the shower. And then it does a, a, a reverse shot. Into yeah. Frank in the shower. There's no tension. There's no laugh. There's no release. It's just it falls completely flat. And that was one of those things where it's like, man, they should have gotten a better director for this because that yeah. moment felt so bad. Uh, but I, I think, yeah, yeah, I feel a little weird about this movie because I I'll, all of the stuff that I said before of how real it feels. But yeah, as a film, but it it relies so much on the I think great performances, great yes. weird surreal performances. So, um, um, including um, uh, the drummer from Autolux. Is yes, that who that was? Yes, mm-hmm. that is. Uh, oh God, I had it pulled up and then I lost it. Uh, fuck. And I'm I'm miss- is the guitarist a musician? No, he's a French he's actor. I actually, I actually recognize him from that French show I watch. Uh, uh, called my Francois Civil. Yeah, Francois Civil, who plays uh, ooh, what's his name? He's got a French name <laughs> on that show. Uh, uh, called my agent, uh, 10%. Uh, and he's the kid of the main guy, and it's uh, hilarity ensues. Uh, oh, she she was the drummer for Mar. She is the drummer for Mar. Yeah, yeah, and that's why she doesn't have too many lines. Uh, and hers is the most she's a great drummer and she's yeah. a joy to watch uh and um she does a great job here sort of the shtick of her character is that she's kind of mute mm-hmm. and the shtick of uh the other guy's character is that he speaks french uh but everybody else just understands him with the exception of john yeah which uh has two sort of comic moments which is one where uh john walks into the room and it's uh uh, it's uh, the drummer and uh, the guitarist, bassist, uh, uh, Barack is his name. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, uh, I don't know why he let you into the band. You disgust me. Mm-hmm. And John just smiles, goes, and says, like, his bastardization of the pronunciation, like, yeah, yeah, man, <laughs> which is, like, you disgust me. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, later on, he comes in after Frank has a freak out and he's laying in the bed. And uh, he, he goes to Brock. He goes, is he okay? And Brock goes, Ido. He goes, he's dead? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, Putan, asleep. And Putan is a fucker. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about, we'll, we'll get to um, some of the other stuff in the last segment, but let's talk about the character of Frank. Um, yes, because this movie could be uh, Frank is not a real char- person. It's not he's not no. based on a single real person. No, he, no, he's not based on Frank Sidebottom. No, uh, the head is based off of that. I think 
like very much so the affability the the uh the niceness of him and um naivete is very much daniel johnston i i think he's a hundred percent more daniel johnston than anyone else I, I, yes. especially when we get to the end yes because there's stuff at the end that is reminded me directly of the devil and daniel johnston oh, the 100 but but i mean the in terms of the output and art um is is still very much a daniel johnston thing but also a captain beefheart mm. uh especially in terms of the recording session was very much uh, taken from the recording session of uh, uh, um, Charmass Mass Replica. Charmass Replica, yeah. Um, yeah, his, his music is much more sophisticated than Daniel Johnson's music is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you were saying earlier that you really like the music. and Yes. And I think, I don't know if I like it, I think it serves its purpose perfectly, which is a placeholder for actual experimental music. It, it's the fakey Hollywood version of experimental music. For yeah. Sure. And, and I think that the, the, they, they got very damn close and it, and it really worked. But I also don't think that, I think with a bit of a wink, which I appreciate um, that they, cause we talk about uh, so many times when we talked about the twilight zone, that the uh, come wander with me really relied on that song having to be great. Yes. This movie doesn't have to rely on the music being actually great and experimental. They just have to show Some you like that it. it is in that direction. And I think they, yeah. they, uh, did a good job with that. I heard an interview with John Ronson and initially he was trying to get various artists, including like Tom Waits to write some stuff for the movie. But a lot of that fell through. And I think yeah. it's, a, it's mostly a single guy. I forget his name, but he's a musician who did most of, uh, of all of the music. Yeah, I, I will say, in particular, I like the first song that you hear from them, Ginger Crouton. Salted joints. sort of fakey outsider artist music. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think you're right. It, it, it's supposed to be sort of a glib, shiny version mm. of Daniel Johnston or Captain Beefheart or, you know, maybe not Wesley Willis. Like it maybe gets yeah. a little bit Wesley Willis, but like, yeah, yeah. Do, do we want to talk about this now or do we want to talk about this at the end? Well, because let, let's, let's let's move the plot. Let's move to plot. Okay, let's, let's move with the plot a little and then finish off with, have... with 
By the way, the name of the drummer is Carla Azar. Yes. Yeah, she played on a bunch of Jack White records. She's really she's really great. Good. Yeah, I mean, and 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 I somebody can confirm or uh, deny this, but I think the deal was that uh, most of the actual instrumental playing was real. Um, I think it very well could be there. Um, most of that the band performed uh, on the Colbert Report, in- yes. including Maggie Gyllenhaal and Domhnall Gleeson. So I think that they may have been playing. And, well, I mean, uh, that, was, that was definitely Michael Fassbender singing. Yeah, and, and, which which fuck you, Michael Fassbender, for one being so handsome, two so <laughs> talented of an actor, having such a great voice and such a huge hog. <laughs> here's the thing yeah he's like a really good singer and there's a there was a moment in the middle segment in ireland where they even make use of the fact that his native language is german because Mm -hmm. german tourists come up and frank just speaks fluent german it's like oh right that's a weird moment yeah now that's a moment see there's a dual thing happening in this film uh, which is sort of the starry-eyed mythology that a normie like John thinks these people has. So he thinks perhaps that uh, Frank is a magical being who can speak all languages. And it's kind of this weird cornball moment where he's sort of like, uh, it's kind of like this, it feels like a trite bit. I can't think of another example where they he speaks to her. You can't hear what they're saying, yes. but they start acting erratically. And he sort of has, like, he transforms her life, but we don't know what he said. It's like the thing that Bill Murray says to What's-Her-Face at the end of Lost in Translation. Yeah. It's this magical, transformative thing. And she's, like, thanking him profusely. And he's like this St. Francis of Assisi. He yeah. can speak all languages and befriend everyone. Uh, so we think that, I mean, uh, 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 Barack speaks French. They all understand it. Uh, he can magically speak German, but then we find out there is no magic that he's, he's just a regular person with mental illness. And, you know, maybe in, uh, bluff Kansas, uh, he just studied German in high school or something, you know, something really mundane like that. A a thing along those lines though, too, that I want to point out is that yes, he is kind of a, uh, throughout a lot of it almost a mary sue like he is this magical he's, he's thing. a manic pixie dream boy yes but the thing i appreciate is the john character i don't think i think he doesn't un, he's um dazzled by frank but th- throughout none of the movie does he understand frank he's he's always like using frank but um but it's not a sort of thing where he's like idolizing him as much as they, it could have been, you know what I mean? He doesn't worship him as a God. He's jealous of what he thinks. Yes. Which is that he was this suffering lunatic. And that is the source of his uh, creative genius. Yeah. And he, he even, he even says that when he learns that he's from bluff Kansas and that he was in a mental institute and he's like, Oh, abusive childhood, which he didn't have. We find out later yeah. and mental illness. Where can I find such inspiration? But that's actually a pretty heavy theme of the movie. It's played for a joke in that moment, but yeah. I think it's maybe the main sort of thing that the film struggles with. Well, I'm going to read the rest of this, but there's a lot. So I'm just going to do it off the top of my head. Um, they go to America because they're going to play South by Southwest. Frank is uh, enamored at the, with the fact that so many people are fans of the music because they ha- got, have gotten so many uh, hits on YouTube. Um, when they get there, though, uh, everything starts falling apart. They try to um, 
have a beautiful moment uh, throwing Don's ashes in the Texas uh, desert, yes. um, which turns out to be something that's not his ashes. Grow not the uh, the liquid vitamin supplement that Frank drinks through a straw. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I I was dreading that they were going to just rehash the Big Lebowski, and they kind of yeah. do for a second, but then they. Yeah, as the ashes different. blow in the wind back onto uh, the people standing there. Um, yeah. uh, creative differences ensue. Um, Claire, Claire stabs John. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, the band uh, falls apart. John fucks everything up. John and Frank perform live. Uh, should I just read this? No, go ahead. I mean, they perform live. They perform live. It goes terribly because they're performing John's music. Um, Everything falls apart. Frank runs away. Uh, He gets hit by a car. He gets hit by a car. His uh, his head is uh, smashed. John finds the rest of the band playing in a bar. And then he finds Frank at his childhood home and learns uh, the truth. And in the end brings them, the band back together and walks off knowing he fixed what he fucked up. Um, that This is a, one of those movies that I love, uh, like my best friend's wedding, uh, which is the main character, the point of view character of the film is the villain of the film. Yeah. Yeah, no, he is 100% the bad guy. Uh, There's even a point in the South by Southwest section where he's like, all right, what we got to do is we got to make it twee indie pop, which is they they make a joke out of the twee indie pop that plays, the corporate indie that plays in Austin, Texas, and especially at South by Southwest. There's like a a scene where they're in a diner. Like it's supposed to be kind of an IHOP. Yeah. type thing and there's like a, a lady and she's mic. playing little yeah can we, we, we gotta talk about this moment yes so all right how to measure my words carefully because i have a lot of i've made a lot of friends over the years at open mics and i've hosted i, I hosted an open mic for a number of years mm. um but before and after my attitude toward open mics is that i loathe them yes <laughs> and i dread them open mics are the worst uh and a little bit of true life musician accuracy here is that like the the two girls who are sort of the people who discover John through social media and invite them to South by uh, and are checking them in. They're like, hey, come get some food with us. And there's an open mic. It's going to be great. Jump cut to them sort of kind of gritting their teeth and bearing it as this girl is playing this wonderfully terrible facility of a twee uh, song on a ukulele uh, where she's just like kind of like Frank stringing together buzzwords, but like twee buzzwords, like <laughs> knee socks, boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and after uh, John sort of des- decides to uh, take them in the direction of making more likable music, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal storms off and says, I'm not playing a fucking ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to be very careful because some dear friends of mine are primary ukulele players. This was before the utter ascension and dominance of the ukulele uh, mm. in, in musical culture. Uh, I, I think it was kind of in the middle. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think th- th- mm. this was like, this was hitting at a thing that was current. Yeah. At the time. Um, 
Um, so I, I want to talk about the just sort of the very end of the movie where John goes to Frank's childhood home. Yes. Because that was the, the thing that made me realize that like, oh, they're not doing Frank's side bottom at all. No. They're kind of doing Daniel Johnston. Yes. Because if you if anyone out there has seen the documentary, The Devil and Daniel Johnston. It's incredible. Uh, it's we a great documentary. We should do it for the show. Yeah. Probably. Um, Daniel Johnston is a man with severe bipolar disorder who lives in Austin, Texas, um, and has recorded a, a, a lot of outsider music through the years, uh, through several decades, uh, and has largely lived with his parents who have dealt with his severe mental illness pretty much as best they can and as best as they are equipped. But one of the points of that documentary is that, like, yes, Daniel Johnston is a genius, but his life would be better if his mental health was more under control. Yeah. And one of the things that the father of the Frank character says is to the effect of he's not a, his music isn't good because of his mental health issues. If anything, his music would be better and he would be more productive. If it was more under control. Yeah. The thing with the paper mache head was my fault. Cause I encouraged it and he never stopped wearing it. And at the end of the movie, you see him without the head and he's handsome as Michael Fassbender, but he has scars all around his head, which I originally interpreted as um, cranial scars from uh, some sort of extensive brain surgery. But Wikipedia tells me is scars from long term wearing of the. Yeah, I always kind of just saw them as like where the strap was always. Um, I might be completely alone in this. So here's how I came to this movie. I watched it like three years ago and I would see the uh, the thumbnail on Netflix all the time, and it's just the Frank head. And I was like, oh, that looks weird, and okay, oh well. And I moved on and would go watch Frasier. <laughs> um, then finally I watched the movie, knowing nothing about it, just reading the, the description that it's about music. And so I'm watching this whole movie, and then we see Frank without the head, and it's Michael Fassbender, <laughs> which uh-huh. I had no idea. And... The, well, because he's he's doing a very convincing Midwestern accent. He's doing he, he's doing something which I find uh, I'm watching The Leftovers currently, and uh, Doctor Who plays a uh, Chris Eccleston, Christopher Eccleston, and the, the accent he does is the same as Frank, which is okay. I'm just gonna talk weird. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's like a weird. It hey, kind of hey there, of the dude from American movie. How's it going? <laughs> I'm from America. That's a a weird sort of American accent to it. Yeah, yeah. I'm from Bluff, Kansas. (laughs) Um, But um, there's a a phenomenon that I experience sometimes, which is um, there's an actor you see all the time and you don't trust them. You don't you don't really care one way or the other about them, but you kind of dislike them for no good reason. And then you see them in a certain role and it changes your opinion of them, including all of the past things you've seen. Um, and that was this uh, for me with Michael Fassbender. Um, it's he was he was a known person at the time. He was, and he chose to do this whole movie in a mask. In a, for, in a for fucking, the most part, yeah, head. That's a fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. A film with a million dollar budget and mm-hmm. that grossed 1.9 million at the box office. So yeah. 
Nobody, that's true. But, got, you know, he, he was a no, known quantity. Well, my point being that, like, that's nothing. I mean, yeah. nobody really yeah. made any money on it. Including, like, they also, like I said, played the Colbert Report. There are live videos of them. Like, the band played some gigs. You know, this was... And you can kind of tell. It's, it's not necessarily perfect. Um, but you can tell it's something that everybody involved believed in in this film and, I and wanted it, to do yeah and i found it very compelling i thought it was yeah. a beautiful film i thought it got a lot of what it's like to be a musician dead dead on and uh <laughs> uh if you knew me in my youth including high school uh mm. and, and before that i uh, uh from the age of 10 until maybe my maybe age of 20 i uh compulsively wore a jacket at all times there were two jackets a members only jacket uh, for like a youth soccer league and then later on an army jacket i mean eventually once i sort of got over the compulsive need to constantly wear it i still wore it as you know a jacket but i would take it off when it was warm uh but i didn't do that and i and would always be seen and so sort of it it's a little it's a little whimsical, but it's not hard for me to imagine treating something like a paper mache head as like a transitional security blanket object and it getting out of hand. I wore a piece of duct tape on my hand for uh, like three years straight. Mm-hmm. I'm probably gonna seriously where uh, on my palm because uh, I was uh, I don't know it's. I, I thought maybe I had a wart on my hand and I, I, I hated the idea of it spreading. And I still to this day don't know if it is actually just a little wart or just a scar from the time I tried to dig it out. <laughs> uh, and God knows what I absorbed. I'm probably going to die from cancer because of all the chemicals and the adhesive I absorbed over that like three-year period. But it Probably not more than you would have just regularly putting any perspirant on. Yeah, um, I, mean, I mean, we all got to die of something, but... yeah. Uh, my point being that sort of compulsive things like that, it was, you know, and it's sort of, sort of the, the letdown, the moment they should have, they could have done more with it, I think, but sort of the, sort of the whole film is in the moment when John goes to bluff and talks to his parents. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's the whole film where uh, John goes, what happened? What happened to him that he did this? And they go, nothing happened. Nothing. He has yeah. mental yeah. illness. He had a good childhood. Yeah. It's mental illness. And he, just, he asked to wear the paper mache head one day, and he was like, I thought it was for a costume party. It wasn't for a costume party. And he said, the worst thing I could have done was encourage it, but that's what I did. And mm-hmm. he and, never took it off. And uh, they have this little montage where John, it's the, the opening of the film where he's walking through his British uh, uh, hometown and sort of sees these humdrum people who are very pleasant and lovely. Uh, but he's thinking, uh, you know, uh, about his song he's writing, and you can tell he's kind of chafed by it. But then when he gets to Bluff, Kansas, they structure an identical scene where he's walking down the street, and there's somebody washing a car, mm. a boy on a bicycle, an old couple walking, and it sort of demonstrates that. And he even says it when he's talking to them that it was a lovely childhood, just like his own. The difference being that yes, he had this great talent, but also that he had mental illness, and mm. uh, the the two didn't come as a package deal. Uh, and a small thing. That I found while Googling just now, uh, that uh, this this is going to be of interest to no one. Uh, 
But the John Seaside hometown is actually Bray in uh, County Wicklow in Ireland, uh, where my uncle lived. And I've been there many times. And I'm surprised I didn't realize it while shout watching out, the film. Shout out to Tom's uncle. He's <clears throat> been dead since the 90s. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I um, one thing I will say, when he, when he has that line of where he says, oh, he had a great childhood. Uh, that is in direct contrast of what Don, the Scoot McNary character, yeah. says. is like, oh, he had this horrible, yeah. abusive childhood growing up. Uh, and that, that was the pain that caused him to wear the mask. And then you realize, no, his parents were great. Yeah. And, and that was the other point of the devil and Daniel Johnston is that mm. his parents are great. He's just difficult for reasons that aren't his fault. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I love that they the film doesn't. It's just that single scene, and it's yeah. just literally like those single lines. Um, it, they're not presenting their thesis. Uh, they're providing a, a a very realistic snapshot of um, of this character, these characters, um, and I I think it's beautiful. And then there's the scene of uh, Frank finally without his mask uh coming upon his old band and them just improvising this song uh, i love you all yeah and he starts with i love your wall and i love your wall becomes i love you all mm -hmm. and and uh for a scene like this like it's almost a musical theater scene that it oh <laughs> it would suddenly happen it it felt real because it was a very simple song <laughs> yeah. um but it made me cry look out for it on instagram <laughs> well frank frank was a really good movie frank frank my boy frankie it, it, it was it was a good movie frank frankie frankie i think i thought it had a kind of like a cosmic scope of, of various things uh, oh oh boys we usually talk about music on this podcast. Nah, yeah, let's not. No, 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 no. Let's talk about the show Cosmos with Carl Sagan. Uh, uh, yes, yes. Not, not the Neil deGrasse Tyson one. <laughs> not the Neil deGrasse Tyson one. Billions and billions. Billions and billions. Billions and we are made of star stuff. The, the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson one just goes, uh, hey now, I'm oh. a sex criminal. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> And hey. hello, I'm Michio Kaku, coming uh, also, at you with the next one. Is he doing it? I think so. Unless he's the not rapist. Yes. <laughs> and then after him, there's there's nobody. There's nobody because Stephen Hawking's fucking dead. <laughs> yes, he is. I saw him on Star Trek. That was that was. He fun. was. He was playing himself. It was fun. It was fun. It was him and Albert Einstein, I believe, playing chess. And uh. Poker, poker, Frank. And uh, poker, what's his poker, name? Poker, yes. Uh, the uh, Socrates. No, the British guy. Aristotle. Oh, Isaac Newton. Yes. Him. Yeah. Anyway, Frankie Cosmos. Wait. Oh. Wait, I'm not. We're doing Frankie Cosmos. We're doing the album Next Thing by Frankie Cosmos from uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day, 2016. 
weren't we all the fool that year? <laughs> yes, we were. I distinctly remember that year with you three, where we were all just like, there was mounting dread throughout so much of it. We were just like, is it going to happen? Nah. Nah. That's dumb. You're dumb. Like Shut up, Frank. <laughs> Release Thumb Bayonet Records. It is the second of three records by Frankie Cosmos, the stage name of one Greta Klein. Uh, factoid. Factoid, Greta Klein being the daughter of actor Kevin Klein. Holy or as shit. I like to call him, um, better non-problematic uh, uh, Kevin uh, Spacey. Or as I like to call him, the guy I confused with Bill Pullman. Oh. No, you're thinking of Bill Paxton. <laughs> I don't think anyone's thinking of Bill Paxton. Oh, he's dead. dead. <laughs> I think about Game Paxton over, man. <laughs> Game over, man. It's a bug hunt. <laughs> I think about Bill Paxton all the time because of the movie that Justin and I just quoted, Aliens by Bames Bamron. <laughs> so... Uh, this is a record of uh, many songs. It's 28 minutes long. It features Greta Klein and various sundry others playing instruments. It's indie rock. And we were talking about twee indie rock, and now we have an <laughs> album. The reaction I had. So here's how uh, we've recently, or at least in the future, are, have been planning episodes, is that I look back at my iPhone at the screenshots of Shazam of whenever I listen to uh, WPRB <laughs> and we're making our way through those. And I heard the song Fool from this album. Your name is a triangle. Your heart is a square. I love to see you way over there. Wait for the clip. <laughs> um, and I loved it. I thought th this... Tom is doing a fucking Rubik's cube, and <laughs> yeah, I'm God. sorry if you can hear that, ladies and gentlemen. He is so not listening to Justin. I am. I can do two things at once. <laughs> I, I listened to the song and I I, I liked it uh, a lot. So then we listened to the whole album. Um, what do you have to say, Justin? I like it. I like it a lot. Also, I don't know who it's for. <laughs> and I, I can tell you who it's for, but I'll, I'll let you keep going. It, it, Justin, why is your butthole so tight right now? <laughs> um, th not that I would know. This is um, this you got is, it in your face. How could you not know? This is uh, this is the music of um. So I'm 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 playing a show in in Philadelphia. My uh my friend is headlining the show, um, and I'm opening up. And His so, butthole. and so I go in, and and this band is playing, and and I stand there and listen to them, and I I love it. I think this is this is awesome, and I even go so far as to to buy the uh, the EP that they're selling, which I then uh, lives in the trunk of my car, 
<laughs> and I never listened to it again. Um, it is. Uh, oh, am I am I a bad person? I mean, no. yeah, but what, I don't see what that has to do with this record. I I think it is supremely listenable. I think any music that is like this, uh, limited distortion, incredibly melodic, very poppy. I this is I would not mind this playing um in a target. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to give you a chance to take this one again, buddy. Fine. Uh Pancheros. <laughs> it's um it's um very You made me mess up my Rubik's cube. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's very good listenable indie pop. All right. All right. We're not being completely fair. We're all no, tired. we're not. I'm a sleepy boy. <laughs> um, I I think this is a super melodic, um, catchy album, and there there are a few uh, tracks on here. I believe it's called um, Embody. Which is just a. There are actually a few songs on here which are like love songs for your for your friends, um, which I think is a really beautiful sentiment. It's like um, um, uh, and rare songs, but like the, they are friends of mine by uh, the zombies. Uh, you know, um, but there's like the beautiful line, like I will, I don't remember. You'll listen to it. Here's a clip, <laughs> and 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 uh, for an album that is um, so much about the travails of of modern romantic love and uh, and friend love, um, it ends on a on a dark ominous note uh with the song uh oh dreaded sea town Frank, do you have anything to say about that song? Uh, Odred at Seatown, like, it's kind of a cool song. It, it has that sort of weird vibe that does not super exist on this album for the most part. But, yeah. like, I I also think, like, there are two moods on this album that I appreciate. I think that I appreciate the musical mood of Odred at Seatown, and I appreciate the lyrical mood of Sappho. Can you feel me in the air? Under the crack in the door have 
too, because like I think the song Sappho sort of gets into that weird space of like unknowing. Mm-hmm. It's like an it's an erotic unknowing that the song is hinting at. Yeah, but like it's it's kind of melancholy, but a little fearful. Um, and that's what struck me is because when I was listening to it this morning, the weather was a little bit nice out, but the sky was getting pretty gray because we were starting to get some pretty bad rainstorms. Mm-hmm. Uh, on my way to work, and that's when Sappho hit, and I was like, "Ooh, this is like vibing really well with what mm-hmm. the environment is doing." Um, and there's a, a lyric in the middle where she says, um, "Oh, I'm sorry if I've been a real bad friend. Your face too close to mine to hear you talk." And that's that sort of charge of both like friendship and eroticism mm-hmm. kind of thing that I really appreciate that she was doing pretty much this whole album. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons, perhaps that we had trouble clicking with this record and we were wondering who it's for. Uh, I think kind of a f- unavoidable aspect of the answer to that question is I just checked using the Google machine and uh, uh, Greta Klein's only 25 currently, which means when this came out, she was uh, 22, 22, which means when they were tracking it, she was probably maybe 21. 21, 20. And which, she even has which a song. clip? I'm 20? I'm 20. Uh, yeah. So... I mean, it just I, it relates to an it, it relates to youth first of all, which <laughs> we're kind of leaving those blocks. None of the three of us are uh, on the other side of. I honestly, my my anecdote about like playing a show in Philly, what really, uh, um, and why I kind of ask like who this is for, is this album makes me feel very nostalgic. This album, uh, I guess, we're not that 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 old that like yeah around the uh, uh, maybe a bit before the time of this album there was a lot of music like this out there and that's why i kind of ask who who was this for because it kind of feels a little it's this is a a, a kind of old album but i felt a little anachronistic if you know yeah was um like i could see this on uh what was the mtv2 show subterranean i could uh, see them playing this on subterranean and me loving it speaking of autolocks <laughs> you know um and i could see young me loving this album and i i will oh, well one thing that i really genuinely do love about it there's a lot of songs um, a lot of them are very short songs, and <laughs> this was a super short record. Well, and it's a short, this is a re- super short record. And and I think um, the album kind of works like that. It kind of works as like a concept album in that um, it's it's a tone piece. You know what I mean? For like that time in your life, for um, it it makes it me it feel it it reminds me of the movie Adventureland. oh yeah i was gonna say it reminds me of juno yes yes which is absolutely it's, it's pretty it's pretty twee although when i listened to it on my phone speakers i thought man this is twee then i listened to it uh, listened to it on bigger speakers and i'm like this is less twee than i recall it being earlier. yeah yeah um so listen to it on big speakers if you got them. Yes. Uh, it'll be less twee for you. <laughs> or good headphones. There's yeah. an aesthetic code. I, I don't know what to call it. It, it all it all follows. Like, uh, to get music gear nerd on you, uh, they are replete with Dan Electros, which mm-hmm. are just sort of like the 
um, raspiest little baby voiced uh, guitars and basses. They're made of plywood and are painted fun uh, flip flop colors. Mm-hmm. Um, you say Dan Electra, right? They're the ones that donate it to Proposition Eight. <laughs> yes, they're cool guitars. I want one, but I can't. <laughs> Just make one of your own. Yeah. It's, it's made of pine and particle board. Um, anyway. <laughs> Speaking of next things, Dr. Fraser Crane. Dr. Fraser Crane is sick. I don't remember. I watched it a month ago. He's afraid he'll lose his job because he's sick. He's a fucking asshole to Daphne. Oh, well. Fraser Crane's Day Off, Season 1, Episode 21, possibly. It's a fun uh, episode. The, so in his dream sequence, in his fever dream, KACL blows up. Does it? Yeah, as you recall, if you watched it, Sooner than a month ago. Who's our first caller? We have Sonia from Auburn on line three. Let's just hear what Sonia has to say. Daphne! Daphne! What is it this Uh, time? I had a dream. I had a dream. They are plotting against me. Yeah, something about a bomb going off. Yeah, he kills everyone with a bomb. Or they blow him up with a bomb. Because uh, they want him what to they die. Sh- what they should do is is blow up Martin Crane with the bomb. <laughs> what, did, what did Martin do this episode? I don't remember because I he also keeps, watched it a month ago. He keeps telling stories about times when he was sicker than Fraser is currently, and yes, there are really that's... graphic stories about him having like diarrhea and yeah. vomiting and things. Oh, and he he tells like a really graphic story about his like uh, getting shot in the hip. Too. And he's like, ah, I got shot in the hip because I'm a cop who likes to beat up black people. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> Frank, stop scuttling this episode. <laughs> it's, uh, it was pretty funny. We get to We're hear that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I think we get for a second time we get Niles on the air, and we... for yeah, a yeah. second out of at least three times we see that he's potentially even better than Fraser at mm. this radio game. Yes, yes, <laughs> Howard, she loves you. <laughs> what about you? I, uh, Howard, you're gonna just pack up your emotional tent and walk away. Howard? Howard, it's up to you. Can you say it? Can you? Come on, Howard. Come on, Howard. I... I love you too, Lois. Yeah! I said it! He said it! I'm afraid we're going to have to interrupt this magical moment with a comer. Good, the little rat is scintillating. Yes, because, like, he starts out really bad, and then he builds up a rapport with the callers in a way that Frasier is not amenable to, because, like, he reduces the distance, and he gets really emotionally invested in the callers. Mm. Like, that's the running joke. He even comes up with a better uh, catchphrase, where he says, Let's get better! Yes. And, uh, it yeah. seems very natural. And Fraser can't have any of this, so he decides to take a bunch of drugs. Because after all, he is a physician, so he writes himself his own prescriptions. Uh, and he goes in there. Which also, that seems illegal, right? Is that illegal? I think it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, also, I believe they wrote this episode purely around... Um, uh, Kelsey Grammer being drunk and <laughs> and them having to fit a story around what they shot. 
<laughs> kind of like this episode. Was, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, because he was mugging pretty severely this entire episode, mm-hmm. which is good. Like, that's what he's really good at is yeah. that kind of extreme mugging. Um, but he's also not giving much of a performance beyond that. I like, mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It was funny. We got to see him follow uh, the trails of somebody's hand, checking to see if he's high. Hey, sure, your eyes look a little glassy. Look fine. It's just that the drugs I took have some minor slide effects. <laughs> Frazier, look at me. Do you see trails when I do this? Whoa! <laughs> I wasn't doing that before. Uh, yes. He he stumbles his words together in a really pleasingly silly way. There's a great uh, there's great makeup work on him because he decides to go to the studio sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's great like uh, bags under eyes makeup that comes across even though this is like a 25-ish year old sitcom that was filmed on video in like a multi-camera format that like that makeup still looks really good like he looks convincingly ill uh even on like a streaming or or justin's theory he was just he was just drunk (laughs) um pretty delightful 10 out of 10 um i don't remember it i think it was okay (laughs) It was it was funny, but I think it's a little too silly for what the show was doing at this point in its lifespan, yeah. um, because previous episodes had done a much better balancing act between the sort of silly, absurdist comedy and a little bit more of the intelligent adult pathos mm-hmm. that it had been working in. Um, so this is kind of purely silly, which it does better in later seasons. Controversially, I like the episode where... Niles and Frazier keep wanting to go to the spa that Cam Winston gets into and they end up in the alleyway. Should Tom say, hates that episode. Should we say it now? We're never going to get to that episode. <laughs> Tom, Tom and I, um, like right before we started this podcast, uh, decided to revisit an episode we both thought was great, was like one of the best. And it does it's not hold it up. Cam Winston. Cam Winston's not in the episode. I love Cam Winston. He's the greatest. But this episode that you're referring to, the one with the spa, it's just the performances are really flat. Mm-hmm. The jokes aren't as funny as I remember. Yeah. Um, and it just, I think they had. Ju- it was very late, very late, and I think they had just gone to a higher definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could yes. see a lot more of their faces, and everybody just looked a lot older. Their their facial performances were a lot less emphatic than you recall, because you know, like you're seeing a lot. But the aspect ratio was different too. Uh, yeah, it just really, really fell flat, and I just remember it being hysterical. Yeah, and and it, that's why I was very pleasantly surprised. When we did start this podcast, that so far this season, there have been some rocky moments, but has been solid and what I remember Frasier to be. Uh, Yeah, it's good. I mean, like, but I'm worried. It does take a dip. (laughs) Yeah, it 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 takes a dip near the end, but it's actually like, it's not the worst dip that a show has ever gone through. Yeah. Tom, you say this all the time, and I agree with it. It's one of the only shows to accurately address the insanity of the Iraq war um, <laughs> near the end of its lifespan. Yeah. There's a great kind of like uh, uh, Arthur Miller esque uh, uh, allegory of uh, the post nine 11 jingoism 
uh, and it had to do with a massive American flag on the roof of the building that involving Cam Winston, involving Cam Winston, Cam Winston and uh, uh, something he wanted, but he was doing it just to get at Frazier because it blocked Frazier's view from his apartment. And uh, uh, every time Frazier said, "Hey, this is blocking my view," uh, Cam just said, "How could you be so unpatriotic?" Uh, really, yeah, no, it's it's a great show. This is a wacky, zany episode. Uh, Eddie the dog dies in this one. He comes back <laughs> the next episode. Uh, uh. The, the Eagle Eye Observer will notice that there are not one, not two, but th- three Rosses in this one. <laughs> yeah, the, one of them goes to the Black Lodge. She's a tulpa. Um, and the other has blue hair. Space, the final frontier, where it is nobler. <laughs> Here, here's what I want to happen in the Picard show. What? Um, here's what I want to happen in the Picard show. Uh-huh. At the end of the first season, there's like this big season-long arc, and then it's all revealed to have not happened, and you hear a voice from behind Picard, and it's. Hello, Picard. Oh. <laughs> How could it not be that? Yeah. It's gotta be, right? It has to be. Recommendation. Recommendation. What are you gonna listen to or watch or read or eat or do? I love you. Recommendations. Um, I want to recommend two um. A film and a uh, miniseries that I have grown in my mind in terms of how much I love them, that I uh, um, coincidentally have recently been reading the source material that they are based on. Uh, I want to recommend the movie uh, Kaidan, which we should do on the podcast at some point. I it's I've... it's grown in my mind. I think I think it's my favorite movie of all time. Really? I think so. It's a couple of the segments there. It's a, a based on a ghost stories written by uh, Lefkady O'Hearn. Um, and it's some of the most beautiful imagery I've ever seen on film. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film. Um, and I also want to recommend... Um, one of my favorite things ever from television, I've recently been, uh, I started to read the book of, uh, short stories that it was based off of, um, Olive Kittredge mm. from, uh, from a while ago, uh, starring Francis McDormand and Richard Jenkins. Oh yeah. Uh, Richard He's Jenkins. Shape of water. Yes. Uh, Richard Jenkins, my favorite actor of all time. And, uh, and Francis McDormand, um, <clears throat> Uh, just look it up. Watch it. It's it's one of my favorite things ever uh, on tel- television. And especially, um, we need to remember that there are, are great things made for adults on television. Uh, not everything has to be the... The shit that is Game of Thrones. Boom, do, 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 boom, do, 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 boom, do, 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 do. Tom, you next or me next? I'd like to recommend the 2016 album by Frankie Cosmos. <laughs> Next thing, if you um, if you want some, you can if you want to aesthetically uh, consistent uh, <laughs> indie pop uh, dealing with the 
the issues faced by many young people out there in the world dating as the daughter of Kevin Klein. <laughs> it hits the nail on the head. Tom cut out a lot of stuff that we had to say earlier in the episode. I, I, I think it's going to stay in. I have confidence. I, I don't know. It is not. Your confidence is misplaced. <laughs> don't worry, Frank. I'll re-record it and post it as a uh, Instagram live rant later tonight. <laughs> um, so I am going to recommend two things. Um, so the first thing I'm going to recommend is I am a person who has recently subscribed to the Criterion channel. The Criterion channel rules. The The selection is amazing. Um, I've gone through the, the Columbia Noir uh, selection, which is awesome. In particular, like My Name is Julia Ross, Murder by Contract, all these mo- uh, movies from the 40s that have been forgotten that are amazing. But I particularly found a film called To Sleep with Anger, um, directed by a guy named Charles Burnett, who was famous for directing a film called Killer of Sheep in the 1970s, which was famously um, sort of a spiritual basis for David Gordon Green's debut feature, uh, George Washington. Uh, Charles Burnett is one of the, uh, probably one of the greatest filmmakers in American history, but he only made three films. He made Killers, uh, Killer of Sheep, My Brother's Wedding, and this third film, To Sleep With Anger. Uh, and To Sleep With Anger uh, is a film from the early 90s starring Danny Glover as a, a sort of demonic figure. And the, the film is based on sort of... Um, Southern black American folklore. Uh, it's about a family who has moved from the South to South central Los Angeles. And they have, uh, uh, gained all of the sort of middle-class values and, uh, accoutrement that comes with that, but they still carry the, the old values of their folk culture. And Danny Glover's character shows up on their doorstep one day and suddenly they know him. And it's implied that he is a demonic sort of devil figure that brings back the past and stirs up uh, uh, tensions and and hatred and and, and, uh, family torment just by being there. Um, And he does things that can't be explained. And he brings back people from the old South in ways that that they don't remember. Like they don't remember these people. They thought they're uh, being brought back from the grave. Um, and it's, I don't want to spoil too much of it. It's got a lot of great performances in it aside from Danny Glover, but Danny Glover is amazing. Uh, it's quite unlike, I think any movie I've ever seen, but it is entirely accessible. Uh, it is really interesting and, and wonderful. Um, I don't want to spoil too much of it because one of the joys in the movie is the way that it resolves itself based on folk logic. Um, Kind of like a Guillermo del Toro thing, but it, it's wonderful. To Sleep With Anger. Uh, go check it out if you can either buy the Criterion or get the Criterion channel or watch it through any number of other means. Um, the other thing I want to recommend is something that I just binge watched, and it is a very English scandal, which is an Amazon Prime thing that was nominated and won a bunch of like Emmys and Golden Globes, but it is better than you think it is. Um, it is the true story of British uh, Liberal Party leader Jeremy Thorpe, who was poised to be the next prime minister and the first Liberal Party prime minister of the 20th century in the late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, except that he was uh, a closeted gay man who had an affair with a much younger man uh, named Norman Scott, 
played in the TV series by Ben Wishaw, who is wonderful, and uh, Jeremy Thorpe is played by Hugh Grant. Uh, the series is written by Russell T. Davies, who famously rebooted Doctor Who and had a bunch of shows like Queer as Folk and The Second Coming and is a great TV writer, um, but is directed in all three episodes by Stephen Frears, who is also a wonderful director. Um, but it is a story about, like, the emergence of, of gay men in the contemporary consciousness, especially in the 20th century and especially in Britain and how it played out from before uh, uh, homosexuality was decriminalized and afterwards and how even afterwards they were still stigmatized and, and, and marginalized um, and how these two characters, this established politician and this much younger man uh, walk on this knife edge of pathos and sort of monstrousness and likability and not being likable, but how ultimately the the worst thing you can be is a powerful person because it turns you into this hollow sort of husk of a human being. And no matter how problematic the younger man, the, the Norman Scott character was and how needy and sort of uh, wishy-washy he was and how unlikable he could be, he was still a fundamentally decent human being who did not deserve the way he was treated. Um, so Jeremy Thorpe plans to kill him and is put on trial for the attempted murder, and that's something that happened in real life. Um, and the way it plays out is really wonderful. The writing is excellent. The acting is amazing across the board. And it's only three episodes long. It's a very short miniseries. Uh, so check it out. A very English scandal. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, your mic turned off, Frank. Oh no. Um. Oh. Um. Fellas, what are we doing next week? That's shut up, Frank. You know that's not a thing anymore. Next week, what the fuck are you talking about? Next time we might be doing. Uh. Uh. You uh, get ready to to bleep it, Tom. Hey, you uh, cunts and cocksuckers! <laughs> we might be doing a Tom Deadwood Lickers. thing. Cocksuckers! <laughs> the Deadwood movie's coming out. Do da do da. Everybody, give a shout! Oh, to do da day. Hey, we are doing Deadwood. Deadwood the movie. We are doing a fistful of datas, which takes place in Deadwood, South Dakota. Mm mm. What was the so the album? We're not doing an album that way. Okay. <laughs> no music uh, either of these weeks. <laughs> Ever again. <laughs> Don't forget to follow the Plaid Lads on Instagram and Twitter, at Plaid Lads Pod. You can check out music made by Justin. Welcome to Wonderfalls.bandcamp.com, where he has one, two, three, four Christmas albums. You can see some things that made him cry at some things that made me cry on instagram it's pretty funny check it out me tom i have music it's called elbow ache it's all over the internet including spotify and itunes go check it out elbowache.bandcamp.com also look at my social media and you'll see where i'm playing shows around here sometime come say hello don't forget to rate us on itunes if you leave us five stars we will read it on the air. You can drag us all you want. Say whatever you want about our three hosts. We'll read it. We're gluttons for abuse. And now I leave you with the comic stylings of Franklin McDevitt. Fellas, 
I did not throw Natalie Wood off a boat. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I've got a fever. <laughs> and the only prescription. Where are you going, Frank? Somewhere exotic? That is from Catch Me If You Can. And also it has the, the word Frank in it. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> go, man, go. You know how I know you're lonely? You got no one else to call. That is me, Tom Hanks, and catch me if you can. Knock, knock, who's there? Go fuck yourself. That's a joke I tell in that movie. It's me, Tom Hanks. And it's me, Leonardo DiCaprio, doing the same accent. It's not Abignale, it's not Abignale, it's Abignale. That's me, Frank, Abignale. Leonardo DiCaprio. I have sex with uh, Martin Sheen's daughter, who I think is played by Amy Adams. And then Jennifer Garner is a prostitute, and she deals cards at me. Catch me if you can, ladies and gentlemen. It's a movie where everyone has a Northeast accent for some reason. <laughs>